Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Popel, and today I'm going to be joined on the show by Graham Ackhurst. The Final Draft Podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is all about exploring Australian writing, a way to discover debut authors and get to know the authors that you've loved for years. Each of these conversations is the way to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Today I'm joined by Graham Ackhurst. Graham is a Kokomini writer. He grew up in Mianjin and he now lives on Gadigal land. His story is very much connected to those ideas as um, Borderland is uh, a young adult novel that introduces us to Jono. And Jono is a city-born Indigenous teenager, very much in search of his identity. I love this book, Graham, and I have a terrific chat to share with you that looks at the fabulous genre-defying writing, the way that Graham explores culture and discovering culture, and also a little bit about what it means to be a writer, to be an Indigenous writer, and to be representing culture in your work. I'm thrilled to be bringing you this conversation. Absolutely loved it. Shout out to Graham. Thank you again, Graham. And uh, look, have I not convinced you? Join me as we discover Graham Ackhurst's Borderland. Today, I am welcoming to the show Graham Ackhurst. Graham is a Kokomini writer who grew up in Mianjin. He is a lecturer in, in Australian Indigenous Studies and Creative Writing at UTS. And today, Graham will be joining us with his debut young adult novel. It is called Borderland. Graham, it is an incredible pleasure to be welcoming you. Thanks so much for um, having me along, Andrew. And I'd also just like to acknowledge that I'm um, dialing in from Yagara and Turrbal country here in Mianjin and uh, pay my specs to mob. I, um, I was fascinated by Jono's story and I wanted to give the listener a brief introduction to it because when we meet Jono, he's finishing high school and he's trying to find his place in the world. At school, he always felt like he stuck out as one of two Indigenous students along with his best friend, Jenny. And as Jono and Jenny, they, they start after school at the Aboriginal Performing Arts Centre and Jono's still not sure. He doesn't know who his mob are, and the other students are still singling him out. But when an opportunity comes along for Jono and Jenny to work with a documentary crew filming in the Queensland desert, they both jump at the chance. The gig, though, is in support of a fracking project, and Jono's instincts are telling him that there's a lot more to this trip than he initially suspects. Graham, I really like Jono, but I felt... When we begin our relationship with him, he is in a really weird state of tension. On the one hand, like, Jono, is, he's clearly a talented man. He's won a scholarship to an exclusive school. He's able to easily land a role against much more experienced actors at the college. On the other, though, he feels constantly under siege. Um, he feels like he's a victim of ever-present imposter syndrome, I read this as a legacy of dispossession, with Jono feeling adrift no matter what he achieves. Can you talk a little bit, though, about your relationship with Jono as he flowed from your pen? Sure. Um, there's a, Well, you know, there's a lot of me in, um, in Jono, for sure. 
I went to Nudgee College, um, a, a sort of GPS private school um, up the road uh, in Northgate and in Brisbane here. Um, and I also did go to a, an Indigenous performing arts school in Brisbane. Um, and I did do a mining documentary where I was out with um, a government-funded documentary talking about expedited procedures for um, communities so that they're better informed about what sort of mining happens on country um, and their rights around the exploration process. So I understood where the book was going because it was tracking so much of my own experience. Um, And when it comes to the nuance of Jonathan's feelings, I mean, a lot of that was the type of feelings that I had um, when I was going to school and when I was going to performing arts school, because as with so many urban indigenous um, young people, perhaps the ties to their ancestral homelands and communities are, um, aren't as strong because of the way that dispossession and colonialism has worked in this country. You open the book with Jono's graduation from an exclusive private school. His time there is, it's only a small part of the book, but it's clearly formidable. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about why this setting, how did, how did this part of Jono's life help you establish the novel and Jono's journey? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, again, it comes down to the um, the sort of disenfranchisement he feels within a very white space. But I wanted to juxtapose that white space to the Indigenous space where he where you can also feel, and as an outsider, even as an Indigenous person, in both spaces, um, particularly when, you, when questions around identity and country are hanging over you. It's really difficult in both, you know, for different reasons, but in both spaces to feel slightly marginalised. Um, so I wanted to juxtapose those two positions um, within the privileged white school and and also the Aboriginal um, performing space just to, a, as a contrast because I think it's, it's an important sort of um, um, exploration of the kinds of spaces that Indigenous young people need to cross into. Mm. We have, I feel like we have have a better sense of, um, a better vocabulary, but also a better sense of discussion around where we sit, when we sit, where we work, where we play, wherever we are in Australia, or our so-called Australia, as mm. being country, as being a country that pre-exists any colonial notion we have a better sense of each country having had uh, language, each country having culture, and that connection is important. But in Jono's story, we see, really, we really see in depth about how not having a full sense or even any sense of where where that country is, um, how much that can leave him adrift. There is a slur that gets used against Jono repeatedly. Mm. I'm not going to say it on air, but at its heart, it is about attacking Jono's difficulty in understanding who he is. It works on him because he has that insecurity. Yeah. And as we come to know the importance or come to understand the importance of cultural connection and that this is a, a history that exists 
in these places. Can you highlight a little bit, like in Jono's story, like how how traumatizing it is to feel disconnected, and that that journey that Jono is about to go on? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it really comes down to you know this idea that you mentioned earlier around disenfranchisement, which leads to sort of ideas around intergenerational trauma because his his mother, Jono's mother, who's a central part of this. Um, story and the only knowledge base for him to have any idea about his um, ancestral um, homeland and his family history. Um, She has focused all of her attention onto making sure that Jono is looked after because it's a single mother and a single mother family. So when you begin to understand that and you begin to understand just how much she works and what that has done to her physically as well. Um, you begin to understand that it's, it's really hard for her to be able to go on that journey herself because she had other responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So for Jono to then have this opportunity and she was supportive of it, um, was, was fantastic. And I think the kinds of, um, indigenous realists, which is what, Janine Lean would call some of the more um, speculative or fabulous in the mm. sort of traditional white genre building world. Um, those elements were incredibly rich for me to tap into because of the connections that we see on different planes of reality, basically. Mm. Um, and, and often something that indigenous people go through themselves is, is how to connect to those, how to connect to that deep cultural roots. Mm. The next question I have for you, Graham, actually, um, it went specifically to that relationship between Jono and his, and his mother. And I, um, let's see, let, let's see if there's something in here that we can explore a little bit further, because as much as I want to move into the plot, into the story, into the mm. incredible journey you take us on, I felt like it was really important to highlight the way relationships um, the central role that relationships have in the book, and and I think particularly so between Jono and his mum. Jono's mum doesn't get a lot of stage time, so to speak, but her influence looms large in Jono's life. Um, it was a particular... So I want to highlight that there's a particular story that um, she tells Jono that resonates throughout the narrative, and it's the, she becomes a driving force but also a comfort when Jono feels adrift. Mm. It really like she occupies this sort of central role. This she is a sort of the rock that Jono is able to um, tether himself to when he does feel adrift. And you highlighted there that she wasn't able to go on her own journey to discover more about her identity. In that sort of circumstance, how important then becomes the relationships that you do have? Yeah, I mean, incredibly important. But there's also I just wanted to frame in this book mm. just how complicated identity mm. is and identity politics are in this country and also um the relationship that the extraction industry has with country mm. um and those are two massive issues that i wanted to make really messy in this book so that the reader has an idea around just how messy that is. And also by giving different positions to it, indigenous positions to identity and Mm -hmm. also um, the extraction industry. So I I just wanted, what I really wanted from this book 
was to make sure that there was a complex story written in a really engaging way for, for teenage readers. Um, but moving back to the relationships and Jonathan's mother and the reason why I was talking about how messy it is is because one of her best friends, as you know, in the, in the novel is Naomi and her identity and the identity of Jenny, who's the um, who's another key character in the book, is 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 quite fraught, and there is a dishonesty that underlines their relationship to identity. Um, so, even though the relationships that the mother has with other people are incredibly important, um, the one that we see the most is with Naomi, and that relationship has an undertone of dishonesty from the beginning. So I just wanted to, you know, mm. explicate how complex relationships can also be with it and how fraught sometimes they are even within um, the Indigenous community. Yeah. I referred earlier to a sense that I had that perhaps we were, as a nation, developing in our vocabulary and our ability to discuss uh, complex issues around what it means to live on stolen land, what it means to live on a land that we call one name, but that actually has origins in many different names and many different places and culture. But it does, like, acknowledging that we might be getting better at this conversation d- doesn't forgive or ignore that so often it becomes flattened and uh, particularly at this point in history, at this month in history, it, yeah. it seems too often people are saying that there is one homogenous view that represents entire groups of people. So yeah, I, I I really appreciated the complexity, and I'm I'm hoping we can come back to it. But I'm I'm kind of I'm going to move a little bit sort of uh, chronologically through the book here. Sure. Uh, in terms of Jono's uh, traveling towards um, seeking out identity, there was a scene um, at the Aboriginal Performing Arts Centre. Jono performs a dance for his class. Um, he's a good student, so like all of us were, he's unprepared. He, I think he forgot. He Did he forget that it was his turn or he just... Yeah. <laughs> yes. He's unprepared and yet he still blows everyone away. It's a tremendous scene. It felt a little bit to me like his superhero origin story, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, that moment where the superhero wakes up um, after they've been bitten by a radioactive whatever. And I'm going to clarify, Jono was not bitten by anything radioactive, but that moment where they wake up and they discover that they have something within them that they're not quite sure they understand. Am I way off base here? Like, how were you How were you hoping this scene would um, move Jono's journey forward? Yeah, I, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Andrew. Um, in many ways, I wanted Jono's arc, narrative arc, to be that of an indigenous superhero that is, that is, that is coming to his, his power, which, and power in, in this novel is multiple faceted. So it's, it's, you know, physical powers, but also um, that of deep cultural connection and Mm. the power that that brings him and his identity. Um, But also the power of, of, uh, you know, at the ending of, of, of having to, end up walking, you know, his path, um, um, alone in many ways as well. So there, there's, yeah, multiple sorts of superhero <laughs> elements <laughs> that, that come through, um, Jonathan's narrative arc. But yeah, I, I really wanted, I mean, I really wanted young 
um, indigenous men to be excited to read a book that was catered towards them. That, that, that was the main goal of the book. Yeah. And through the performing arts center, Jono, he, he wins, he, he, he auditions and he successfully gets this role in the documentary and, when he when he sort of embarks each member of the documentary project, we've touched on this idea of complexity, but I wanted to really get into the way you depict it. Each member of the documentary project seemed to be on their own journey with identity. Can you talk a little bit more about depicting those myriad journeys from people who are are feeling sure but perhaps on shaky ground and then others who have um, moved further in their journey? Yeah. That it was it was it was interesting to write and, um, you know, with, with any book, there's, there's plot considerations, character development, all that sort of stuff. So the, the one that I found the most intriguing was the sort of inversion of Jenny and Jono as the novel continues mm. uh, around their, um, their identities and the strengths of their identities um, without giving too much of the plot away. Um, and we see also in Tabitha, mm. a, um, um, a white facing indigenous mm. person um, who is really strong in cultural um, in capital in some ways and is looking towards representation within, you know, the higher echelons of her um, career in film and television and all those sorts of things, um, but also has never been to her country. So there's those kinds of identity issues that are at play. And then we have Mike who is, the often well-meaning white man who's keen to support Indigenous issues. He's even got flags, Indigenous flags tattooed on him, um, which is, you know, the, the butt of a, a hope, hopefully a funny joke towards <laughs> in, the, in the book there at some point. Um, and his idea around how supporting Indigenous causes is actualized in, 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 in reality and, and, and what's not okay, then there's Jenny's journey. Yeah, so it's many, many different journeys of identity. Mm, I, You are so gorgeously subtle in the way you play these um, these complexities as well. Tabitha was a particularly interesting character and I, I liked the way you forced Jono. I, I felt like you were trying to force Jono to confront his own preconceptions and his own stereotypes because, of course, yeah, Tabitha in the way that she is written um, is passing white, but of course yep. of, of the entire crew is strongest in her, her understanding of, of her culture. And then Mick, yeah, Mick is, Oh, I like the way you said, you, you, I think you, did you describe him as kind of lovable a little bit? I didn't like him at all. He, he, <laughs> he irked me. And then yeah. there's a, that tremendous scene with Jenny where doesn't he accuse Jenny of being racist? If she doesn't particularly of you, of you, it's like, Yep. absolutely just fabulous like just just taken straight out of like a black comedy episode where <laughs> you've got some sort of uh eastern suburbs or everyone knows which part of their local city we're, we're talking about but yeah you've got this person yep. who's just like such a such a good ally they're gonna tell the person that they're um they're racist yeah uh yeah gorgeous scenes read it read the book just for those scenes um where are we at sorry i'm enjoying myself a little bit too much here <laughs> So good. You touched. Um. Oh no. One. One final question. This. This probably isn't relevant. But t- I was really confused. So Mick's got these these tattoos on his arms, so that when he puts his arms together, they form uh, the Aboriginal flag. 
What I couldn't figure out was whether it was it was black in a semicircle on one, red in a semicircle on the other, or whether it was sort of split. Which which way was it split, or does it not really matter? I, I, for me, it was split just directly down, down the middle, right? Yeah, and then it would, yeah. So um, I don't know where I came up with that. It was kind of, and but when I did, I thought that's that could be hilarious, um, and hopefully it is in the book. Uh, yep, yeah, it's 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 quite amusing. It's quite amusing, and. The, yeah, the moment where he finally sort of puts them together, so to speak. Yes, just gorgeous. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you touched on the fact that the documentary is seeking to provide information for communities about a fracking project that's being uh, proposed for their country. There are obvious tensions with any mining project in, well, I feel like in the in the climate for the last few uh, few generations. Yeah. I was curious about how you went about ensuring that you managed to depict. I guess both the fact that this is a polarizing topic, but then mm. also the different sides and perspectives on the land in a in a way that I guess didn't you know bleed a particular um, philosophy. Yeah, I, I you know at the end, Jonathan obviously lands on one one side of the argument, but I didn't want to discount Sid's side of the argument either because it's a, it's a really important one, and we're, we're talking about people's livelihoods here. Um, and when the, the, the biggest sort of um, asset that a lot of mob have is the fact that mining leases are interested on, for their country and that will provide employment and social justice packages and all this sort of stuff, the, you can't just discount that because it might be slightly, you know, because of the ecological damage. Mm. So it's a very, very nuanced kind of case-specific argument that needs to be made around what's best for community and what's best for environment. Um, and I, I hope that I towed the line there as best as I could with, while obviously landing um, mm. with Jono on a particular sort of, and Sid in the end as well, because of what actually happens to the country um, during the during the narrative of the novel. But I again, um, Andrew, it comes back to just that real willingness I had to show multiple Mm. sort of um, views around these kinds of really topical but also um, incredibly complex issues that mm. that surround Indigenous subjectivities and country and um, ideas around the interface that Indigenous people have with government institutions around those sorts of issues. So, yeah, it's it, – yeah, I just um, – I really, really wanted to explore those pertinent issues around Indigenous subjectivities at this particular time as mm. well. It strikes me, Sid is Sid. Sid as a character contains the most pathos. I, I really felt for his position because he, mm. he he ends up in a position where he he feels torn. Um, yeah, I think probably one of the more difficult. Um, exemplars of, of that expression of having a walking in both worlds or having a foot in both worlds. And, and the, almost, you know, there could be a, a whole nother story focused on Sid and that um, very different story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is a, there is a, a building momentum 
to the story. We have travelled to the Queensland desert with Jono and the documentary crew. Jono is learning about his country. He is learning about – well, maybe I'll cut that out. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jono is learning uh, more about his identity. And I want to tread lightly with spoilers here because there is – a through line that leads to a, an incredible conclusion. Um, Jono's story culminates with some events that are, let's call them not your every day. <laughs> and I feel yeah. like readers, I feel like readers with different experiences of life, different experiences of literature might be tempted to put a genre read on the novel when they discover these mm-hmm. elements. Yeah. And I wondered how, how did you view these more than every day event in light of Jono's quest to understand his identity and culture and how is it is it diminishing or in any way oversimplifying to simply put a genre spin on them yeah I, look I don't think so in the sense of we have as a readership an obsession to categorize things and um, the reason that we do that is so that the reader has a certain understanding of what they're getting themselves into when they buy the book. Mm. So um, I'm happy with all that sort of stuff. You know, it's a lot of it's out. of People are going to say what they will around um, certain aspects of the novel anyway, when it comes to which particular genre. I mean, it it is so multi genre. And I think a lot of the reviews are saying that because there's just so much going on in the novel that it could be called a horror. It could be called an eco thriller. It could be called, you know, something speculative fantasy, you know, there's so many different um, names that people could place on the novel. Um, But at its heart, what I was really trying to do was give that awesome climax to the book where a young 15 year old indigenous reader will be like, this is so cool. That's Mm -hmm. all I wanted to do. And also I, I just wanted to make it again, really complex in what is happening here? Because God, it's really hard to talk about this without giving away, isn't it? Mm. Um, because of what Wudan represents within the novel, um, you know, as a, as a protector of the land um, and the fact that Norman and, um, and John need to have this epic sort of battle with that, that, that kind of um, element. It, it was it was really interesting to write, but um, I just, I really wanted it to be as exciting as possible, but also to sort of fold our reality with that of the dreaming. Mm. You've touched on some incredible elements there that we haven't spoken a lot about, but I do know in my, in reading the book and also reading, um, your introduction, uh, you begin by acknowledging support you've received in writing Borderland, uh, particularly in the many readings, including cultural sensitivity readings that informed the novel. Yep. You also you also noted that you worked within the Australian the Australia Council's protocols for producing Australian Indigenous writing, uh, which yep. would have all informed the way you approach these topics, but also the way you depict them. Mm. This is not something that we get to talk about a whole lot. It's been um, many, many years ago when I first started the show, I actually had the opportunity to speak with Terry Janke about those protocols, which um, which I think I think were quite young then. But I wanted yeah. to know, like, in terms of working with them, can you talk about these processes for producing your novel and why they were important? Yeah, and I think um, 
Andrew, as a as a reader of the book that you, you know you finish it now, you could you probably have a good understanding of why I, I did such an mm. extensive um, process with this particular novel because of the cosmological elements mm. and the it was you know I was really going for it and I just wanted to make absolutely certain that I it wasn't going to. Um, the, any representations within the book was going to harm mob in, in any kind of way. Um, so you're right. I, I had three um, cultural sensitivity reads and all of them I got incredible feedback from um, as far as, okay, yep, these changes need to be made. But the, um, And I also talked to um, Aunty Kerry Charlton here as a Yuggera elder um, to make sure that she'd read the book so that the, the, um, the, the elements that were set on Yugger and Turbal country were um, acceptable to her and and community. And then, of course, the the sort of the most work that I do is with Uncle Ray Stanley, who's a Gungri elder and was um, head of the Aboriginal Property Association out there. And by Uncle Ray Stanley, I've got to give it to him. He he must have read six or seven versions of this book over the time, and <laughs> was probably just so sick of me um, getting in touch with him. Um, but I will always forever be indebted to him and also that he was able to disseminate the work to other Gungri elders to make sure that they'd read the book. And, you know, the, some of those early drafts, they were like, look, I think the, the, the dreaming aspects are too aligned with Central Desert Mob. Like, oh, I'm not comfortable with it. So there was those kinds of elements that I needed to take in and, and rework huge sections of the book. Um, and then towards the end, it was about representation He's like, I, I don't like how harsh you're being on some of the uh, Gungri characters in the in the in the township. So I was like, yep, no problem. So I changed those things around. So it was a work in progress. Like every single draft with the cultural sensitivity readers, with working with Uncle Ray Stanley, you know, um, Arnie Kerry read a couple of books, uh, versions of the novel. So yeah, it was it was a huge sort of team effort in many ways to make sure that. I was very clear that this was fiction, which is why the, um, the, the beginning of the novel, you know, the paragraphs that I talk about the processes and, and, and what I'd done was so clear around making sure that I'd talked about who was consulted, mm. what I had actually done for the book. Um, and look, a lot of other, you know, people don't realize that for, Indigenous writers, we also need to make sure we're doing the right thing, mm-hmm. it, doubly so, because our direct communities are the ones who are looking over the book and, they, you know, so easily, if you're not doing the right thing, they'll they'll call you out and that's that's just mm-hmm. how it is. So you've got to make sure you're, you're getting the book read by the right people and, and taking on their feedback and actioning that feedback. And in the end, it just makes for a far better book. Mm. I know. Um, I know, Graham. As a as a writer, you are a reader as well. I, yeah. I don't mean many writers who aren't readers, and that means you would you would know the excitement of you've you've chosen a book. This is your next experience, and you cannot wait to dive headfirst into page one. <clears throat> I want to ask you though, like, because this is something that people probably aren't familiar with this uh, process of cultural sensitivity reading and the way you've acknowledged this, do you think it's important that people should be looking for this when they are reading books that depict 
um, First Nations culture and life uh, or are by First Nations uh, writers? And what should they be looking for? What should they be looking for as they start these books? Sure. I mean, for the, it, I think it's great to, to, for the writers to place you know, what they've done either, either at the front of the book or mm-hmm. in the acknowledgement section around the kinds of, um, if, if they're working with, um, indigenous communities and all that sort of stuff to make sure that they're acknowledging what, what sort of processes they went through. But at the end of the day, the reader will know in through the text because you, you, you just, our readership has grown in its abilities to call out this, kind of racism that used Mm. to permeate a lot of the renderings of indigenous communities and Mm. indigenous characters throughout the sort of, you know, fraught history of Australian literature leading up to the more contemporary stuff. So I think, um, if then, if you as a writer are not doing your due diligence, it will actually just come out in the text and you'll be called out for it anyway, Mm. because the readership at the end is the, the best gauge for this kind of, um, this, this kind of lack of, due diligence when you're engaging with communities around the portrayal of them and um, indigenous subjects within your text. So I just wanted to be upfront with, yeah. with the protocol process that I've done. And hopefully you can see it in the text in, in the yeah. renderings of the indigenous communities and the indigenous people that I've um, um, the characters within the book, which are all fictional, but that in some ways that also doesn't matter. There mm. still needs to be a, a true, a close representation. And this is another reason that I, I, I found such interest in, in writing this book was the certain, even though it's fiction, how close fiction can feel to the truth, even when you're just writing some really out there stuff, like some of the, some of the um, issues that we're dealing with within this novel are so easily, you know, um, connected to what is happening in our, in our real lives every day. Yeah. Thank you so much, Graham. I know that that is an area that I think many readers are not familiar with. Um, and it's a very process driven area when I guess as a reader, you often just want to get lost in the text. But I think for anyone out there who is is interested in exploring Borderland, read those first few pages. Just It's an extra five minutes before you get into this incredibly engrossing story. Um Graham, thank you. You've been so generous with your time today. One last question, if I may. Yeah, absolutely. Just a short one. Did I um, did I detect that you've perhaps left the door open for Jono's story to continue? <laughs> um, yes, but yes, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, Save well, those pages. They're not getting it anytime soon, reader. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, it's one of those things. I yeah. think um, at the time I thought, well, you know, mm. there's no reason why, and it, there are answers that are deferred, particularly for a couple of the characters as well. Mm. So um, there's always the opportunity to 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 write the sequel um in time. Um, you know, if, it really depends if if this book engages the readership um as well. If people are excited for a sequel, then I'd be. I'm not never going to say no to writing more if people want to read Indigenous work like this. I mean, I'd be stoked. Put me down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Graham. I am speaking with Graham Ackhurst. We are discussing his new novel, Borderland. It is 
a tremendous work. It is pacey. It is thought-provoking. It is immediate. And I thoroughly recommend you go and check it out. Graham, thank you for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Andrew. It was really lovely having a chat today. Cheers. That is it. Thank you for joining me today on the Final Draft Podcast. Thank you also to Graham Ackhurst. Graham's new book is called Borderland. It is out now from University of Western Australia Press. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. Find us where you find us. We are on social media. You can also just give us a star rating. Give us a little bit of a comment on the podcast wherever you listen. I think that's probably the best way to share the podcast. It helps us pop up in other people's podcast feeds and it shows like-minded people that this is a book podcast that they might want to discover. My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back again. I want to say next week, but I am going to be back several times over the next week. I like to drop uh, big and small episodes, interviews and reviews throughout the week. Stay with us. Um, And of course... As I say goodbye, I also want to say happy reading. Bye for now.